Welcome to Strategic Real Estate Investor Radio, presented by Strategic Real Estate Coach. Strategic Real Estate Coach is where the nation's leading real estate investors, brokers, and agents turn to transform the way real estate business is being done in neighborhoods across the nation. If you desire to make more money, do more deals, grow your passive income, and build the lifestyle you've always wanted, you need Strategic Real Estate Coach. This powerful team is led by Josh Cantwell, a seasoned investor with nearly a decade of experience, over 600 transactions, and generated over $5.5 million for himself and his partners. Now, sit back, listen, learn, and accelerate your business with Strategic Real Estate Investor Radio. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Josh Cantwell here, CEO with StrategicRealEstateCoach.com, and thanks for joining us again on another interview. For all you real estate investors out there looking to make money and profits and change your financial future with real estate, I am here today with my co-host, Kyle Gariffo. What's up, Kyle? How are you today? What's up, Josh? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Awesome, awesome. So, Kyle, you've been um, hosting some of our recent podcast episodes and interviews, and I hear we're getting rave reviews of your interviews. So are you enjoying it? How's it going? Yeah, it's been going great. I mean, we've answered a lot of questions that the students have sent in, which I encourage them to continue to do. That's how we can, you know, touch base with, with everybody that's out there, and they're asking some great questions. And had a great interview with, with, with one of our Shrek Mastermind students, Mr. DK Kim. He's always a pleasure to talk to. Sounds like he's got some hidden tricks to uh, reveal to us at the uh, Flip and Fun Summit as well, too. So, Yeah. Yep, I was just talking to DK. We're going to have him on one of our coaching classes to do this uh, HUD Hacks presentation, and then he's going to jump up on stage in a couple of weeks um, at the Flip and Fun Summit and kind of teach that to all of our members. And so if uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't yet secured a ticket for the Flip and Fun Summit with, uh, obviously, me and our strategic real estate coach faculty, as well as our keynote speakers, Donald Trump Jr., Daniel Wiafi, and Joe Carney, my securities attorney, my question is, what are you waiting for? It's going to be the coolest and most exciting real estate event of the year. It's going to be in Las Vegas at the Aria Hotel. So visit flippinfun.com to secure your ticket. And uh, so today, Kyle, we were kind of brainstorming just you know over the last 24 hours, um, sending some text messages back and forth about big mistakes that investors make that kill real estate profits. And between you and I, we came up with really 10 you know, kind of big mistakes that kill real estate profits, uh, especially when you're doing, uh, you know, big deals, when you're doing properties where you, you buy them, you have to get financing in order to repair them, reposition them, and sell them. And so let's, let's talk about these. You know, let's go through these 10 so that all of our members and listeners can really get a feel for some of the challenges that you and I go through on a daily, weekly, monthly basis and some of the things we have to avoid to make sure that we make good deals, right? And I think you and I have probably made each one of these mistakes in the past. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe more than a few times. Each one <laughs> say, of these. Not twice, right. Yeah, I'd say more than, more than a few times uh, on each one of these 10 mistakes. Yeah. And that's why it's kind of fun to talk about because you look back at the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, uh, and I'm sure we can probably talk about the ugly on each one of these. But, of course... When you when you hit a home run and you get all these right, is is when you walk away from the deal and make a make a big profit check as well. So, yeah. um, so Kyle, let's jump in. So, one of the things that 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 I think is probably one of the biggest mistakes 
Um, especially when you're taking title to a property, buying it, fixing it, repositioning it, and that's going to sell it for a big profit. It's just bad planning, right? You, you know, if you make an offer today and you get your offer secured and you put down your earnest money deposit, you're probably going to have, you know, let's say two to four weeks yeah. until you actually close on the property. Um, you and I both know, you know, if you're buying a bank-owned house or a HUD home, the HUD home, they basically give you 45 days to close. But bank-owned properties, they always say, hey, we want you to close next week, and then they're never ready to close next week, right? They always, they don't have the, the title, they don't have the deed, they don't have the title work done. So it's always two to four weeks. So what that does, right, is it buys us two to four weeks to get all of our planning in place, basically to order the dumpsters and schedule those for delivery to get our contractor in place and make sure that starting on day one, they're ready to start demoing the property and basically getting to work and bringing a crew that's going to kind of swarm the property. But really comes down to over that two to four week period is, is, is planning, right? Budgets, schedules, scope of work, permits. Um, so Cal, why don't you just talk about that? What, what are some mistakes that people can make in that two to four week window and by just planning better, preparing better, um, and, and, and not locking things down that they step onto day one of a job site and things kind of get off on the right foot. Yeah, I think people make the mistake that thinking day one is when you acquire the property and you close. That's not day one. Day one is when you get the property under contract. That's when day one truly starts. Um, I think I see that a lot with newbie investors as well, too. They get so excited. I've got something under contract. You know, they're calling family and friends, which is great. But they don't start hiring a contractor till till the day they close on the property. Then the contractor comes in. They interview three or four contractors, go through a scope of work. You know, maybe start looking at permits. You're three weeks into the project before you've even you know lifted a hammer, um, and you've lost three weeks of time right there. Which, as we know in this business, time is money. So, you know, as we always talk about at our live events, day one is the day you 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 are under contract and are ready to go. That's when you bring your contractors in. You develop that scope of work from, from the very beginning. You know on day one who's going to be in there. You have a budget already set out. You have a timeline. I'm very big on having my contractor have a timeline saying week one is going to be demo you know, and, and this, and week two is going to be you know, all the mechanicals are going in. Week three is this. That all needs to be spelled out and laid out before you take possession of that property. Day one should be like, or excuse me, when you take uh, possession, that should be gangbusters, like you said. You should have five guys in there demoing it out. Demo should be done in like one or two days, depending on how big the project is. But uh, day one, like I said, is when you get the property under contract. That's right. So if I get the property under contract today, I've got two to four weeks until I you know, have my private money or my hard money or cash until I actually close. That two to four week period is huge. you got to get your contractor out there. Maybe not just one time, but maybe two or three times to oh, review yeah. things. Yeah. Making sure you're on the same page, which kind of leads me to the second mistake, which is under budgeting proper repairs. Right. So if you're new at this or you've only done a couple big projects, you know, a lot of times people will be like, well, you know, it needs 20 grand. And then when you kind of get into it and you're kind of winging it, it doesn't really need 20, it needs 33 grand. So the second big mistake, right, is under budgeting proper repairs yep. and making sure your contractor is on the same page as you are right from the get-go. So how can they solve for that, Kyle, and just making sure that, you know, 
the proper repairs are being planned for and the product that they're putting on the market is the right product for that development or that city or for that price point. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the first thing is is getting a contractor that you work with consistently. I know that's difficult in the beginning, but getting somebody that knows what kind of product you're going to produce. What are you trying to do? There are, there are some people who cut corners and contractors will go along with that and they'll try to hide mold with paint and things like that. And and that's not how I do business. That's not how you do business. But your contractor needs to understand what are you trying to do? What are you trying to produce? Um, you know, because when you have a consistent contractor, you start understanding what that budget's going to be before you even bring your contractor in. I know looking at a property, and I know you do as well too, it's going to take us, what, two minutes to basically look around and say this is a $50,000 job, or this is a $35,000 job, or this is an $80,000 job. I don't deviate too far from those numbers on, on any said project. I don't have anything that's 150 usually. I don't have anything that's 20000 usually. I, I pretty much know, and I'm, I know you do as well too, what it's going to cost as soon as we get in there. So. Um, I think the other thing with that, Josh, is important to, particularly in the beginning, is have your contractor spell out exactly what is going into that house. Don't just say tile is going to go in the bathroom. What does that mean? Tile can cost anywhere from right. 86 cents a foot to five bucks a foot. You know, what does that mean? If you were planning on putting five dollar tile in there and he was putting 86 cent tile in there, there's a huge difference there that's not going to produce the product that you want. So that's that's pretty important as well. Yeah, and the other thing I think that's that's really important when you're talking about putting in the proper repairs is the finishes um, that you're that are going in. So you need to be aware of what other properties that are in that development or in that city or in that part of town or at that price point. What are the finishes that are expected? Right. If you're asking three hundred thousand dollars for a property, what are all the other houses in the neighborhood? What kind of finishes do they have? Do they have granite? Do they have marble? Do they have certain types of you know, backsplash and cabinets. Do they have certain types of, you know, uh, crown molding or, or chair rail or trim? Do they have certain types of doors and windows? You know, the finishing stuff. You can't say this house is worth three hundred because they're all worth three hundred. Yeah. Some houses in the neighborhood are going to be worth three seventy. Some houses in the neighborhood could be worth two eighty. And the difference is going to be typically things like square footage and finishes. Those are going to be the biggest things, really. That determine value of the, the 370 property versus a 280 property. And again, that, that's really part of, you know, under budgeting um, and thinking like, hey, this house down the street is going to sell for 400000 yours is going to sell for 400000 But you under budget your repairs because you put in a bunch of, let's say, middle grade finishes versus the other property that's selling for four hundred is having all high-end finishes, really nice granite, maybe some marble, you know, maybe some hand scraped, uh, you know, hardwood floors. Those types of things are a big deal to make sure your property stacks up against the others. Yeah, and and when you're doing your comps, don't just look at the number what it sold for. Look at the pictures. What does it look like? Why did it sell for four hundred thousand dollars? I just bought a house at the end of the year. It's a thirty-eight hundred square foot house, just like you said. It was a bank owned. I literally had to buy it in under a week because I was a cash deal. I beat out uh, two other uh, finance buyers. My my offer was thirty-five thousand dollars cheaper than theirs. I beat out there because I was paying cash. I closed on December 30th. Um, the thing with this house is that it's truly a carpet and paint job um, and a bathroom that, that leaked as well too. So when I go to sell it, I'm going to sell it for $400,000. That's literally what my, what my selling price is going to be. But there's a lot of houses, like you said, selling for $400,000. I need to do something that's going to, be, that's going to separate that house from everything else that's on the market. 
you got to have that wow feature, that that sizzle feature that makes my house stand out. So when they go look at the six houses for sale in the neighborhood, they remember my house. I'm doing a kick-ass shelving unit in my mudroom, kind of like you see on Pottery Barn. I'm doing that in there. I'm doing wainscoting, you know, throughout the first floor. I'm doing picture frame things on the on the family room walls. These are the things that are going to stand out. So knowing what your competition is and beating your competition by going one step above them, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money, but you have to do something that they're going to remember your property. Yeah, absolutely. Which brings us to number four. Actually, number three, I'm sorry. Number three, the number three mistake is add-ins or add-ons. And what I mean is after you've put together your schedule, your scope of work, your budget, and you've started, you own the property, you've started demo, maybe you already have your... Uh, mechanicals in, your electrical, your plumbing, your HVAC, stuff like that is already finished, and you're starting to then now look at, at walls, right, is, is add-ons, right? So if you're going to move walls, that has to be part of your upfront budget, um, especially if you're going to have mechanicals that have to be moved as walls move, like plumbing and electrical. Um, or if you say, well, we want to add another bathroom here, and you're already, you know, two, three, four weeks into the property, yeah. and you think all of a sudden, well, maybe if we move this wall and add this bathroom, it'll add value to the home. Well, that's great, but hey, man, should have thought of that before you took title to it. And I've been involved in deals where all of a sudden my brother and I will think, you know what, we should have thought of this before, but let's move this wall, let's break out, maybe make the master bedroom bigger, or open up the kitchen, maybe add a bathroom in the basement, and all of a sudden now we're five, ten thousand dollars over budget, and that's definitely a mistake that we've made in the past. And sometimes you can't always see that before you buy it, but you should. You and your contractor should be able to walk through and say, "Hey, if we're going to do anything big like moving walls or adding rooms or adding bathrooms or doing an addition, that's all got to be part of the budget at the beginning. Because if your budget is let's say fifty thousand dollars when you start." And now you're doing add-ons or moving walls or adding bathrooms. Now you're all of a sudden you're at fifty-seven thousand, sixty thousand, and that's going to kill your profits. Yeah, and that's why, like you said in the beginning, it's so important to do that initial walkthrough, if not once, twice, three times with your contractor. Bring somebody else on as well too. If you've got an architect, you know I have an architect that I can bring on for free. He comes out and looks at my. Get somebody else's opinion to say, hey, if we do this, get another perspective so you can make that decision before you take possession of the property because people don't realize that putting in a bathroom is not just, oh, that's simple. It costs me $1,000 a fixture anytime I want to add something in. That's If I want to put a sink, that's 1000 bucks because that's plumbing. Want to put a toilet over here? That's 1000 bucks. Plumbers and electricians will kill your budget. Yeah, absolutely. So number four, um, missing the after-repair value. Um, and this is this is a big one, you know. When you go into uh, a neighborhood and you think, okay, everything in this neighborhood sells for about five hundred thousand dollars. Well, that's probably not the case. You probably have properties in that development that are selling for four fifty, five hundred, maybe five fifty, six hundred. You're gonna have a range, right? In one of the developments I used to live in, there were properties from the high two hundreds to the low seven hundreds, all within, with technically within the same development, just depending on which street you lived on. Um, so you're talking about almost a $400,000 difference in you know different different property values, um, and some of the square footages were not all that different. You have some houses that were 3,500 square feet that would sell for 350, and some houses that were 3,800 square feet that would sell for 600, right? So you can't use the same comps. There's got to be something about that property that makes it the value different 
things like the lot. Is the property on a cul-de-sac? Uh, does it have you know neighbors in the backyard, or is it a wooded backyard? How big is the lot? Is it a half-acre lot? Is it an acre lot? Or is it just a postage stamp lot? Um, again, we'll go back to the finishes, the fixtures. Does it have you know granite, tile, marble, uh, you know wainscoting, uh, you know uh, tray ceilings? Those kind of things make a big difference. Another thing that makes a big difference that's not something you can see just by looking at square footage is how open the floor plan is. People pay more for open floor plans. And so, Kyle, what are some resources or some tools or some things that you do to try to accurately value the after repaired value? You know, do you look at the MLS? Do you look at um, maybe you know market analysis, a CMA? Do you have your realtor pull it? Do you get appraisals? What are some things that make you feel more confident in helping determine your after repair value when you're just buying a house and it might need fifty thousand in repairs? How are you projecting forward? Well, that's the you know that's the advantage of having a realtor who works with you, who understands what you're trying to do, so they can send you over comps, send you over CMA. I always ask my realtor Janice to send me over her opinion of what the after repaired value is before I tell her what I think it is as well too, because that gives us then two opinions, and they should jive, they should mesh together, we should be on the same page because we're both looking at the same thing, but we both understand what value truly is, like you're talking about a walkout basement, a, a wooded lot, something like that. So certainly use the MLS, but you can go to places like Redfin. Um, Redfin is not available, I think, in every state. I don't know if you guys have that, Josh? We do. Yeah, Redfin. For a while, it was not available everywhere. Now it is, I think, but it was not. I've used Redfin since it started. But Zillow, places like that, I, you know, those are great to kind of go and check close comps, but certainly the MLS is going to be your biggest one. One that I just used, particularly on this property that I just bought, December 30th was I have an appraiser that I called and I said hey I'm not looking for you to do a full-blown appraiser can you just take a look at comps what would you appraise this thing out because that was one thing that I struggled with on this property is the ARV because things sell from 360 you know on up to 450 in here and I was trying to get a pretty accurate value and he said you know Kyle I'd appraise this thing at full, like four I think ten all day long so that's what I needed to hear because I bought it for 305 and I'm only putting in like 22 grand into this thing and that's it so you know these are the people this is part of your team that you need to develop that that good realtor have an appraisal you can just call and say hey Bob can you give me this opinion of that um, these are the people that you have to have to really get value yeah some other tools that you guys can consider like uh, Kyle mentioned um, Redfin another one is Red Bell um, there uh, I have not used Red Bell but one of our members a guy named Jeff Love out of Atlanta um, swears by Red Bell. He says it's basically real quest on steroids. Um, he loves that. Um, another one is that that Jeff had uh, recommended. Again, I have not used it, but speaks very very highly of it. Um, is uh, a program called Realtors Property Resource RPR. Uh, the website is narrpr.com. Um, and again, it gives tons of comps, uh, tons of updates on properties. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a resource that's tied into the National Association of Realtors. That's another resource that you can use. Um, we, we have a, uh, a national database of appraisers that we work with because at Freeland Lending, we obviously make loans to our members and partner with our students. And uh, so we have a national uh, uh, you know, appraiser network. We can order an appraisal for anywhere between 
you know, three to five hundred bucks, depending on the property and the location. So if you're unsure of what the after repair value is, we order appraisals every day, literally every day through our lending company. And these appraisers will tell us the current value based on its current condition and the after repair value based on the scope of work that's going to be done. And they'll project forward on what they think the after repair value is going to be. Um, so you can always hire an appraiser, but you have to let the appraiser know, uh, hey, I'll need an as-is value and an after-repaired value, and they're going to want to know what kind of work you're doing to the property. Um, so so that's, that's another resource that you can use. Of course, another way to determine an accurate after-repaired value is to literally drive through the neighborhood and call every sign that's for sale and ask what the property is listed for, have the realtor tell you about the property, and if they're having an open house, literally walk through it. Walk through the house, see what kind of finishes they have, see what kind of features, uh, maybe a, a bump out off the kitchen or a finished basement, or maybe they have a theater room in the basement that you didn't see. Those things determine after repaired value, but certainly, uh, like Kyle mentioned, getting three opinions, yours, your realtors, and maybe another opinion from a neighbor or from you know somebody else on your team, uh, or getting an appraiser to look at it. You know those are all ways to make sure that you guesstimate the ARV appropriately. Um, because again, the number four mistake that we see students making and investors making is missing um, the after repair value. You know if you think a house is going to be worth 450 and you miss it, and all of a sudden it only sells for 400. Well, man, that's fifty thousand dollars of profit that just disappeared. So you can't, yeah. you can't miss those. Well, and okay, I, I five, Cal, how about financing costs, right? Yeah. So many students, especially because we're such a big lender now, who when they put together their budget, they don't factor in maybe they're paying points, maybe they're paying for appraisals. Uh, you know, what are what are the interest costs that they're gonna have? Um, and they look at okay, I can buy a house for a hundred. I can put 20 into it. I can sell it for 180. That's 60,000 of profit. Well, not really, no. because when you factor in your closing costs, your financing costs, it eats into that 60,000. So, Kyle, what, what are you looking for when you do a flip? How do you kind of budget and think through your financing and uh, holding costs? Yeah, you kind of have to work backwards. I mean, for me, obviously, my interest paid to my investors is going to be my biz, big, biggest expense. I'm going to pay 12% annually to my investors, which I know you do as well, too. So I'm going to usually underwrite for six months because most of my deals are going to be between three and six months. If, if I know that construction is going to take a little bit longer, it's a full gut, it's a $85,000 job, then it might take a little bit longer. I might underwrite for eight months, something like that. But typically, I'm going to at least subtract six months of interest and that's only that's also acquisition price plus the cost of repairs. That all has to be added in there if you're borrowing all the money. If you're paying points to freeland whoever it may be, take that all into consideration as well too. If anything, over budget for that. You know, over budget. I always add a fudge factor as well too of five grand just because you're gonna have you know other expenses, which I think we'll talk about as well too. But there's always something else that's gonna come up. There's always um, an issue that's going to pop up on, on my house that I just had yesterday. My 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 furnace just went out on the uh, circuit board blue. You know that was not part of it. It cost me like 400 bucks to get a circuit board. Um, so you always want to take that into consideration. Don't don't shortchange yourself and think, well, if I cut corners here, I do this, or I don't pay for that, or I hire the worst painter in the world, maybe he'll give me a good price. 
you know, that's that's not how you want to do business because then you always end up short on that end. So, yeah, we have a uh, a rehab profit estimate guide that we use. We give it to all of our borrowers through Freeland, and it's a, just an Excel spreadsheet that we created. It's very straightforward. You plug in your numbers. You know, what's your after repaired value? What's your purchase price? What's your rehab budget? And then it builds in everything else. Like we have an estimate for a percentage of closing costs when you sell a house. We have an estimate for closing costs when you buy a house. We have an estimate for points. So whether somebody's borrowing and they're paying three points or six points or four points, we put that in. You know, and then we always budget six months of interest. Um, you know, rehab projects you know can take anywhere between two two months to six months, depending on how big the the rehab is. Usually, you know, two to three months to maybe four months is accurate. And then, you know, you're going to have your days on market. How long is the property going to sit before it actually gets under contract? And then how long from you being under contract to the actual date you close? So six months is a pretty fair number for a rehab. You know, if you finish it up in three months, it's on the market for a month and a half or two months, and then your buyer is going to take 30 to 60 days to close, um, especially with this, this new closing system that they have. Um, it's, you know, we're estimating now closings that used to be 45 days are now taking 51 days or 53 days yeah. for a buyer to actually get to the closing table and actually sign the papers and us to get paid. Um, so minimum, I would think, of six months of interest. Um, and just to be, just to be uh, on the safe side, you know, maybe even budget eight months worth of interest just to make sure that, you know, you're, you're kind of overestimating. And then if the property comes in quicker and you sell it faster, then great. You've made extra profit and you're good to go. But that's big, making sure that you understand all the financing costs in advance. Typically, yep. again, like we say, if you're buying a property for purchase and rehab at up to 65% of the after repaired value, you're going to be golden all day. In some markets, going up to 70%, or in some markets, even 75%, you're still going to be golden all day because properties sell faster, they're more expensive, like Chicago, where Kyle's at, or California, and you're good to go. You can afford to pay over 65% for purchase and rehab. But those financing costs, I'm blown away by how many people don't know the actual amount of cost that they're going to pay. It's really easy to project, right? If I'm borrowing $400,000 and I'm paying 12% interest, right, that's $48,000 a year. It's $4,000 a month, right? It's a point a month, $4,000 a month. How long are you projected to have this property? Four months, six months, eight months? Build it in, right? So you're not surprised at the end and thinking you're going to make 50 grand. You actually make 20 because you forgot about uh, financing costs. Are you struggling to find great real estate deals to flip, rehab, buy and hold, or wholesale? End the frustration today and get 55 simple and proven strategies that find smoking hot deals in your market absolutely free. Go to 55simpleways.com slash podcast right now. That's 55simpleways.com slash podcast. Kyle, number six is holding costs. Yep. Same thing here, right? This is another thing that eats into, and it's a big mistake, that investors make that eat into, you know, re real estate profits, which is holding costs. Now we're not talking about financing, we're talking about insurance, utilities, property taxes, stuff like that. And I'm, again, blown away by how many people leave that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
here in Chicago, you know, talk about, you know, utilities, you know, everyone has to have heat, you know, during our, our costs change depending on what season it is. During, during the summer, you've got to maintain the lawn. You can't just let your lawn go crazy. You've got to maintain it. During the winter, we have to do snow plowing. We've got to do all that. We've got to make sure that the roof's not leaking. We don't have ice damming, which I'm sure you guys have there as well, too. All these things cost money to, to do. Insurance is a, is a huge expense. You cannot go to a state farm or an Allstate or a Geico and get insurance on a house like this. Maybe you can do it once because I've done it once, and you can kind of fool your state farm agent into thinking what it, what it truly is. But you've got to go to a another insurance company like a Foremost or something like that. Um, insurance on my house that I just bought is going to cost me about twelve hundred bucks every six months. I mean that's that's pretty expensive. That's you know expensive insurance. Actually, I think it's a little bit more than that. So that's all got to be taken into consideration as well too when you buy. That that stuff all adds up. You know utilities, your heat bill. Um, these things are particularly in in the winter time, man. Heat's expensive, and you've got to keep your house obviously heated. But um, property taxes. Now, do you pay your property taxes, Josh, when as as a property's going along, or no? Oh no, we usually don't. We um, so in Ohio, property taxes are paid six months in arrears. So, for yep. example, first half of 2015, those taxes are now due in January of 2016. Right. So it's six months accumulates, and then the payment is due six months after that. So if we buy a property today, uh, we'll get a credit for the second half of 2015. So let's just say property taxes to make it easier, four grand a year. We're going to get a $2,000 credit for the second half of 2015. Now, those are going to be due in July. So if we buy a property today, fix it, rehab it, and sell it. Now, when we bring the property, and let's say we sell it in July, now, we're going to owe the property taxes for the second half of 15. We're going to owe for the first half of 16. And the first half of 16 is going to be a credit that we have to give to our next buyer. So we don't pay them as we go on my deals, but we do require it from our borrowers. When, uh, sure. Through freelance lending, we require they stay up to date on their property taxes because we don't want to end up having to foreclose on somebody and have a bunch of property taxes that are past due. But for us, we buy them, fix them, and sell them quickly. So I don't really worry about the property taxes and pay them as we go. We just clean them all up and we sell the house at the end. And I do the same thing. And and my point to that is though, like for this house that I just bought, you know, my taxes are twelve thousand dollars a year. So I got a credit when I bought for twelve thousand dollars. So it looks fantastic when I buy because even though I paid three hundred five for it, I ended up coming to the table for for only two eighty four because I get all my tax credits. Well, people think, oh shoot, I bought it for two eighty four. No, I have to give that twelve thousand dollars back when I sell. Plus, I've got to give a half a year back. I got to give another six grand. So it's going to cost me eighteen thousand dollars in tax credits when I sell that property. Which, if you don't take that into consideration, that's a ton of money. Yeah, absolutely. So utilities, obviously, uh, you got to heat the property, pay for the pay for the grass cutting or the snow plowing. You got you got to bake that in. Insurance, like Kyle mentioned, property taxes are the biggest of the three. If you you'll miss that. Um, number seven, the number seven mistake that people make, and, and, and this is something where you just got to be on top of your contractor, is having your contractor miss days on the job. And this is a, kind of a happy dance, right, Kyle, when working yeah. with contractors? Because yeah. contractors are not going to just work for you. They have lots of clients that they work with. They have other projects that they're doing, and they don't want to push off all the other projects just to work on yours. If you can find a contractor that will do that, 
that's a guy that you have to just, you know, hog time, make sure he stays on your projects all the time. So one of the battles that you'll constantly be fighting if you don't have a contractor that's dedicated to you is he'll say, okay, yeah, I'm going to have five guys on the job today or, or, or two guys on the job or eight guys on the job. Well, if a contractor is not dedicated to you, trust me, there's going to be days where people don't show up at all or days where they say six guys are going to be there and only two guys show up because that contractor has dedicated some of his crew to another job for somebody else. So when you decide to hire a contractor, and again, this is part of the planning process in that two to four week window before you actually close on a house, you have to make sure you understand what's the expectation with this contractor. You have a budget, you have a schedule, you have a scope of work, but how many guys is he gonna dedicate to your job on a daily basis? The other thing is you don't want a contractor who says, you know, I'm going to send these three guys today, and then the next day he sends three different guys. Because you want the same guys on the job over and over and over again because they start work. Let's say they're starting to hang drywall, or they're starting to mud and tape and finish the drywall. Well, you don't want that crew of guys in there on a Tuesday and a different set of guys to come in on Wednesday to finish the job. Right? So you want to have the same guys on the job day after day and make sure that your contractor is committing that crew to you until the job is finished. Right, Because How much money does it cost you on a daily basis when things aren't done? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hundreds of dollars a day. I mean, you bring up a solid point that you got to have the same guys. I mean, I always have the same guys who work on one project at a time. I don't, you know, because if some guy comes in day one, like you said, hanging drywall, then you get a whole new crew who comes in day two. It takes them four hours to figure out what was going on the first day. You know, you've just wasted four hours and hundreds of dollars of your money. Um, so it's very vital to have those same guys work on your project. And your contractor should be the one who organizes that and takes care of that. But that's why it's also important to have that scope of work and schedule done before you even start that project so you know what's happening week one, week two, week three, and you can hold his feet to the fire to make sure that that is done because they, they're going to get paid either way. You know, They're going to get paid either way, whether they finish it in two weeks or three weeks, they're going to get paid usually the same amount of money. Now, you can do incentive programs and things like that, but I don't believe in that, particularly if you have a contractor that's on your team. I know that my guy is trying to do it as fast as he possibly can. But you've got to have somebody who, who understands the urgency, is going to do quality work, but it's going to do quality work at a fast pace. Or else if you just hire some you know, handyman or anything like that, they don't care. They're going to get paid their money. And whether it gets done in two or three weeks, it doesn't matter to them. So that's important there. Yeah, you bet. So if you can find somebody who's dedicated to you, fantastic. You have to have enough work, though, to keep them busy. Yeah. And, um, if not, if you don't have somebody that's dedicated to you because you know you don't have enough projects to keep them busy all the time, at the front, at the front end, when they put together the quote, the budget, and the schedule, make sure that's in the contract of how many times, what guys, how many people are going to be there on a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, and that moves us on to the next uh, mistake. This is mistake number eight. Is and this has to do with materials, right? It's, it's, it's amazing to me that there's these companies out there that do, let's say, custom kitchens, right? And they build cabinets and they build tray ceilings, and that's, that, that's all fine and dandy. But the amount of markup on materials, it can be through the roof 
Guys can charge double, triple what they can actually get the materials for, 50% more. So finding somebody who is, again, at the beginning, going to uh, estimate the cost of materials, but then when there is a change, when there is a change order on a job, and there are things that need to be added or things that need to be subtracted, or you do make a small adjustment to maybe the style of the finishes, is understanding who's going to go buy those materials and what are they going to cost. Because if you just leave it up to your contractor, you're almost giving them a blank check to just mark up the materials at whatever cost they want, and they're going to keep the difference, right? So making sure, if, if, if at all possible, you are buying the materials or at least sourcing the materials and know the price of the materials and not just leaving it up to your contractor because the markup on those materials can be very, very expensive. Yep. Now, Kyle, I know when you work with Anthony, you know, I, I, I think from the conversations you and I have had, he's basically getting the materials at cost and then he's marking up like labor or he's marking up the job by a certain percentage to cover, you know, making sure he's getting paid. Yeah, so how exactly. do you guys handle making sure the materials, the cost of that is not getting marked up substantially? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get charged anything for, for the materials other than at cost. I mean, he buys it at cost. We, I used to buy a lot of the material, and then he would credit me back at the end of the job. We just find that that got confusing. You owe me this. I owe you that. It just didn't work anymore. So now he buys everything, um, but I still do shop for things. I still be, be the one-on-one who picks out tile and does all that. That is still part of my job description. That is what I do. So I will go. I just did this uh, yesterday, actually. I went to Lowe's picked out like $2,000 of material, and then he comes in the following day, pays for it, and picks it up at the same time. So I know that I'm not getting marked up because I know what things cost because um, it basically it's already picked out. And then he charged me a 10% construction fee on top of, of everything as well, too, which is pretty cheap. I mean, you could see it. 15 is pretty standard. You can see 20. You can see 25%. That's what a contractor makes. People forget that, that a contractor – not only is going to pay for material, but then they have to make money as well too. That this is their job. They have to pay their crew. They've got to pay their guys. They've got to pay insurance. They've got to pay this, and they still have to make a profit on top of that. So 10% for me is pretty cheap, but that's because I've been working it with him for three years. But uh, you know that that can be negotiated too with a contractor. Somebody says, "Oh my, you know my fee's 20%. Well, how about 15? How about 12? You know you can certainly negotiate that with a contractor if they're not willing to. Maybe it's time to find a new contractor, but. That's that's typically how I handle buying materials with uh, Anthony, certainly. So. Yeah, and one thing to add to that, so this is part of mistake number eight, but also could certainly be, uh, you know, part of mistake number seven, which is you know days missed on a job site, um, which is if you don't have the money to pay your contractor on time, guess what? He's going to walk off the job. So um, another mistake, which you could you know just kind of stick with our ten here. You can kind of bake this into number eight or number seven, is make sure that you have all your financing up front. I've definitely had calls with students and I've heard from students through our, our customer support department and through our coaching calls. You know, hey, um, I need more money to finish this project. I only have the money for the purchase and you know, twenty thousand out of the forty thousand I need for rehab, now I'm out of money. And I've got to go find the other twenty thousand dollars. Oh my God, what a huge mistake because now your contractor's walked off the job. He's probably pissed off. You probably owe him money. He's not going to come back. Now you got to go find another contractor to come in and do, you know, uh, clean up half the stuff that that guy, the first guy, did. And sure enough, the second contractor doesn't look any of the work that the first contractor did. So they want to redo a bunch of stuff, right? So don't make the mistake of shorting your own budget. 
Don't make the mistake of shorting your contractors and not paying them on time. If they need to be paid every Friday, pay them every Friday, right? I mean, money is, you know, people say, oh, money's not important. Well, it only pays for food, you know, for shelter, for clothing. So I would venture to guess that it is important, right? And you can't short people and miss, uh, you know, payment schedules and miss paying contractors, miss paying their guys and expect to have work done. If you want to make a contractor happy, pay them on time, pay them on budget, and buy them some yeah. extra beer and pizza. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? mean? It doesn't take much, but if you screw a guy over or don't pay on time or they're waiting for money or they're waiting for checks or waiting for materials, guess what? They got guys who are sitting there twiddling their thumbs, and those guys are being paid for being on the job. They're probably paid hourly. So the last thing your contractor wants to do is have guys sitting around doing nothing and charging you. But if yeah. you're not prepared, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, just 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 pay your contractor on time. Whatever the schedule is, whatever you know, you do it in three draws, whatever maybe. Just just have the money for them. They are ever appreciative. They 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 work harder for you. You know, knowing that they're going to get paid on time. Trust me. I mean, you know, contractors have guys who don't pay them on time. They hate those guys. They don't want to do business with them. They still have to finish the job, which is even worse. They still have to finish the job. They want to get paid their money. But if they can't get their money, what motivates them to even finish the job to begin with? Right. So pay your guys on time. Yeah, guys. So mistake number nine, uh, which is properties don't sell quick enough. Um, and what I mean is you have the property that's on the market. And let's assume that you've done a great job with your project. You put a good property on the market. You have a good product that you put on the market. It should sell itself, and it should sell quickly. But one of the mistakes is when properties don't sell fast enough. You know, days on market can kill a project. Just sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting for it to sell. So this, there's a couple different issues here that we want to address. Number one is make sure that when you go to sell your house, I'm a firm believer in aligning myself with elite, high-level, A-player performers. And so I want a real estate agent. I don't want you know a newbie. Sorry to all the newbies. I don't want to hire you. I don't want a kind of middle-of-the-road realtor who's been in the business for 10 years and does you know six or eight or 10 transactions a year. I don't want you either. I want the elite realtor who's been around for a while, that has an incredible marketing plan that is going to, you're going to find them in the local, uh, you know, newspapers, periodicals, the local, like say, you know, the local post, you're going to find ads uh, on TV, you're going to see them, like the one guy I see when I go to the, the, the grocery store, he's got an ad inside of every shopping cart. You want an agent who has an IDX website. IDX website stands for Internet Data Exchange. That's a website that pipes the entire MLS into their website. So buyers are constantly going to their site looking for properties and opting in. You want a realtor that has a buyer's list that's constantly working with buyers that can you know, double-end your transaction. They can list it and they can bring in uh, a buyer as well. You want an agent that's constantly spending thousands of dollars a month on marketing. Okay, you want them, uh, you know, to have a buyer's agent that's a dedicated buyer's agent. You want an agent that's constantly listing six, eight, ten, twelve properties. You want an agent that has a full marketing plan. So when somebody comes to your house and says, "Okay, 
Um, I'm thinking about hiring you to sell my property. Show me your marketing plan. Bring me your binder. Bring me your three ring binder and show me your 50 point marketing plan or your 80 point marketing plan or your 63 point marketing plan. What is it? What are you going to do differently? You see, agents, I'm sorry for all you agents that are listening to this, you are a commodity. There's millions of you. And the average real estate agent only sells 1.6 houses a year. That's it. Your average real estate agent sells less than two homes a year. So why would I work with you if you're a part-time realtor who also has a part-time job, let's say, you know, delivering pizzas or, or working at the local bank, or why would I hire you versus another realtor who's full-time, all the time, spending thousands of dollars a month in marketing, that has a buyer's agent, that runs property launches, why would I hire you when I gotta pay you and the other agent the same exact commission? Okay, so if you're a real estate investor, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is working, in my opinion, working with that middle of the road realtor. You want properties that sell fast. You wanna deploy an unbelievable marketing campaign. You want to hire the right agent that's going to sell your houses, that's going to bust their ass. We want somebody who's full-time. There's tons and tons of realtors out there, right, that are part-time that do this as a side job. Well, look, if I'm going to be successful as a real estate investor, I want the absolute best real estate agent who's going to dominate, right? And the real estate agents, Kyle, what is it? You probably think it's it's, it's not the 80-20 principle. You guys have probably all heard of the 80-20 principle, right? 20% of the business is done by 80% of the people. 20% of my activities generate 80% of my income. In the real estate agent community, it's probably 95-5. Yeah. Probably 5% of the agents that make 95% of the month. Yeah. Yeah. And that's who you want to hire. You want to go find those people who are in that 5 or 10%. So don't be afraid to ask an agent, how many transactions did you close last year? If it's not at least 25 or 30 or 35, don't hire them. Okay, don't hire them. Because marketing makes the difference. It definitely makes a big difference. You see, when you sell a house, it only comes down to a couple things. It comes down to the property itself. Is the property in great condition? Is it a great product? Is it clean? That's number one. Number two is, is the property priced appropriately? If you can have a great product that's priced at or below the market, it's going to sell. That's number two. And number three is marketing. Yep. It's marketing. It doesn't matter if you own a tire shop, if you own a gas station, if you have a hair salon, if you're a real estate investor. You have to have people walking through the front door wanting to buy your product. Okay? So that's mistake number nine is hiring the wrong agent who's not going to be a super active uh, you know, marketer, somebody who's not going to spend big money, right? And finally, Kyle, number 10, which is when buyers flake out, right? When buyers flake out and you've done a great job and you have done an incredible job with your renovation, you put it on the market, sold quickly, and a buyer flakes out, yeah. right? Doesn't that just suck? No, it has never happened to me. Yeah, right. It never happened to me either, except the 45,000 times. <laughs> right. Um, so how do we solve for that? How do we make sure that our buyers can get financing? Well, 
I think the biggest thing is that people think when they get it under contract, that's the time to relax. Like, all right, I'm counting my money already, right? That's what that's what we all start doing is how much money am I going to make, right? I got a contract, how much money am I going to make? The thing that I have, the biggest deal killers for me are attorneys because every everyone has to have an attorney here when, when we close. Both buyers and sellers have attorneys and home inspectors, okay? My two worst enemies when I'm trying to sell a property. Because, enemy number one. Oh, yeah, because neither of them seem to care whether the deal happens or not. You could add appraisers into that as well, too, as, as kind of a sub uh, one, and, one and two there. But a, uh, attorneys, first of all, are going to scrutinize the contract. They're going to go over it. They're going to say, oh, I think you might have paid too much for this. I mean, attorneys have opinions even though they're not supposed to have opinions. All their job is to really look at it from a law perspective and say, okay, well, good to go or not good to go. But that doesn't happen. Attorneys get involved all the time. Home inspectors, we've all had a home inspection done, whether it was on our house, we bought or sold, whatever it may be. We can't stand those guys, right, because they, they, they nitpick, oh, the paint's the wrong color. What? How do you even know that? You know, like, what, what do you mean it's the wrong color? But they do. They chime in for everything. It gets into the, the, the buyer's mindset, and then they start thinking, then they want a credit for this, they want, then they want a credit for that. So when you get a house on a contract, that's when you have to kick it into overdrive, and you've got to massage and need that buyer to the very end, to the closing table, until you sign the documents. I've had people, Josh, at the closing table, throw. I had a pregnant lady got so mad at me, she threw her pencil down or her pen down at me. She's like, that's it, I'm done. We had to get separated from, from different closing rooms. It got so ugly. This woman was crazy, and... Her attorney actually came into the room and apologized to me because she's like, this lady's crazy. I'm sorry about that. But she could have not closed on that day, and I've had that happen where somebody didn't close on the day we were supposed to close. You've got to get somebody make sure that they're pre-qualified. You can even go as far as having a preferred lender. You can say, hey, I've got a preferred lender. I'd like you to get pre-qualified with them. I don't care if you don't use them, but I want you to get at least pre-qualified with them. You can do that. I've done that before on smaller deals just to make sure that they are qualified to buy my house. I just got an offer on one of my houses. The guy was, was not even pre-qualified, hadn't even talked to a bank yet. You know, right. So it's, what are you doing? It's a waste of time. It's a waste of our time. It's a waste of my realtor's time. Um, but this is when you have to get into overdrive. It's not the time to sit back on the couch and relax when you get that contract and start counting your money. You count your money when you get the check. That's when you start counting your money. That's right. Yeah. So some other tips there. Uh, make sure, again, I, I love Kyle's idea about making sure that your buyers are not just have a pre-approval letter, but they're actually pre-qualified. There's a difference. The difference is that when somebody's pre-qualified, they actually go sit down with the mortgage broker. They not only fill out the Title III, the loan application, but they actually give their tax returns, their bank statements, their pay stubs, their latest W-2, uh, they verify income, they give all that stuff, they pull credit, they do that during the pre-approval process. So really all the mortgage broker needs to be able to approve the loan is literally to insert the address and the purchase price and the loan amount because the person's already gone through a substantial amount of the underwriting process. That's the best borrower. That's the best buyer that you can get. Yeah. So you know, one of the mistakes that we see is we just had an offer on a house and the guy says, well, yeah, they made an offer, full price offer, great. This just happened last week. Full price offer, uh, it was the property we have on Amsel Avenue, and the guy says, yeah, full price offer, great. And oh, oh, by the way, I have to sell my house, and oh, by the way, my house is not even on the market. <laughs> like, dude, 
come on. Like that realtor shouldn't even be showing houses to that buyer. Right. Right. So again, big mistake that somebody can make is working with buyers that are not really pre-qualified. That buyers flake out and they haven't really submitted their tax returns, their financial information. That's what good mortgage brokers will do for you. If you send pre-approved buyers or buyers who are interested to a mortgage company, a good mortgage company, like we work with Nations Lending, we work with First Federal Lakewood, we work with Cross Country Mortgage, these guys are professionals. They know that a buyer is really not pre-approved just because they had a conversation over the phone. The buyer is not really pre-approved just because they pulled their credit. They want to pre-qualify buyers with a conversation, a face-to-face -face meeting, pulling credit, and getting tax returns, bank statements, and pay stubs. Then they can do a full pre-qualified letter, not just a pre-approval letter, but a pre-qualified letter. That way you know when that buyer buys your house, there's an extremely high likelihood that that buyer is going to get to the closing table and close on time. You know, part of this also, this other mistake of not managing your buyers and buyers flaking out is not communicating with the buyer's agent. It's amazing to me how many clients I have, students I have, and I used to make this mistake back in the day too, Kyle, where I would talk with the buyer's agent, get the property under contract, and then not really talk with that buyer's agent for sometimes days or weeks. You know, it's amazing how many buyers and buyer's agents and mortgage brokers don't follow the contract. The contract says they have to get their inspection done within seven days. They have to get their appraisal done within seven days. They have to have a pre-qualified letter from their uh, lender within 14 days. Those are all contingencies to a contract. Those have to get removed, and there's a, a contingency removal form that you have to sign. Yeah. Right. So making sure that you're in constant, your listing agent or you are in constant communication with the buyer's agent, making sure the appraisal is scheduled quickly, making sure the inspection is scheduled quickly, making sure that, um, you know that uh, that those things are removed, making sure that. You know, they're meeting with the mortgage broker. You understand what's left. What are the stipulations? They're called steps. What are the stipulations that need to get removed so the buyer can get to the closing table? Right? My wife and I just bought a new personal residence. Big house. Lots of money. But we were in constant communication with our mortgage broker, who was in constant communication with the listing agent, telling them, hey, this is where we're at. Because we wanted to close early. And we did. We closed actually two weeks early, right? And because we knew what we had to get done, what needed to be finished, and we communicated that to the listing agent, which obviously made the seller happy. So, um, so guys, managing those buyers, making sure buyers don't flake out, making sure they're pre-qualified, not just pre-approved, is a big deal. That's mistake number 10, and that kind of rounds out our 10 mistakes, making sure that you're managing that buyer all the way to the closing table because you don't get paid, your private lenders don't get paid off, you know, you, you're not free of that loan that you've signed for, you know, the, the tally of holding costs and financing costs, it doesn't stop until the day you close. Right. Right? So don't judge, don't start jumping for joy just because the property got under contract. Right? It's it's a time to get excited for sure. You know, but don't start don't start counting your money until the money's in the bank. Yep. So Kyle, that was good, man. That's exciting. There's, there's 10 mistakes there that we see a lot. Um, Kyle obviously coaches a ton, of, a ton of our members. I do as well. 
Um, you know, Kyle, you you know, flipped 250 houses. You know, we've done you know close to 700, but probably well over 200 significant large rehabs, right? 30, 40, 50 thousand dollar rehab budgets or more people making. So don't make those mistakes. So Kyle, before we wrap up, any kind of parting shots or words of encouragement? No, it's just, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, obviously. I mean, these are 10, and there's probably 10 more mistakes that you could possibly make as well, too, you know, that we've all made. I mean, I'm just looking at this list saying, shoot, I just made one of these, like, two weeks ago. I just got a call from, from, one, of the, from one of the cities that uh, I've got to go talk to a city official now that, um, you know, so mistakes are going to happen. There's no doubt about it. I mean, even if you know this list and, and get it, you know, tattooed on your forehead, you're, you're still going to make a mistake in there. But the biggest thing is just don't make don't make the mistakes that cost you money. I guess is, is really what it what it comes down to. You know, if it if it's choosing the wrong tile, all right, that's one thing. But don't make the mistakes that are going to cost you money because there are there are a lot of moving parts. This business is not easy by any means. But when you when you do it right and you surround yourself with the right team, you know the end result when you get that check in your bank is 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 pretty cool to see. So absolutely. So guys, a couple things housekeeping item before we wrap up. Number one is. I will also be recording this uh, this very similar uh, training in a uh, YouTube video, and we'll put that video up on our website at strategicrealestatecoach.com. So to check out uh, the video uh, version of this conversation, go to strategicrealestatecoach.com, click on the education button in the top right-hand corner, and you'll see a featured post. We'll put that up here in the next few days, so check that out. Also, make sure if you're listening to this on iTunes, um, make sure you leave us a comment. You know, let us know how we're doing. Do you, do, do you like the material that we're covering? If you like it, leave us a review, and also leave us a five-star rating. If you think we just did okay, leave us a three-star rating. If you think we suck, then leave us a one-star rating, right? But just leave us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. Um, so we appreciate that. And finally, of course, if you haven't downloaded our free material and information, on our 55 simple and powerful methods that find great real estate investments, uh, go visit us online at our website, strategicrealestatecoach.com, and download that free report. Now, I will also send you out you know, weekly tips and tricks and advice on how to be a rock-solid, profitable real estate investor. So, Kyle, thanks a lot for joining us again today. I look forward to some more of yeah, your um, releases in the future, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Okay, guys, talk to you soon. Take care. You were just listening to Josh Cantwell and Strategic Real Estate Investor Radio. Leave a comment on our iTunes channel and let us know what you want to learn next, who you would like Josh to interview, or if you just want to share some of your success stories in real estate, and maybe we'll talk about it in the next show. While you're there, give us a five-star rating and make sure you subscribe so you can be the first to hear new episodes. Follow Josh Cantwell and Strategic Real Estate Coach on Facebook and Twitter. And definitely check out all of our awesome free training videos at youtube.com slash SREC video. Finally, download your free report, 55 Ways to Find Killer Real Estate Investments at 55simpleways.com forward slash podcast right now so that you can get better at finding properties and funding properties and stay up to date on what's happening right now in the real estate industry. That's 55simpleways.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>